Good morning, everyone. Welcome to One Life Community Church. My name is Ben, and it is so great to be with you here this morning. I should have adjusted this podium before coming up here, but oh well. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, it's great to be with you here this morning. Also, it's great to be with everyone who's joining us online. Uh, we're glad you're able to join us in any way you're able to. Just want to remind you that the best way to engage is on the online platform, which is at onelifeseattle.org backslash live. And there, there's a message board, there's live prayer, there's a Bible app, there's a place to take notes, and just multiple ways for you to stay um, engaged in the service. <laughs> so we've been going through First Peter. We started it last week. We, Rich talked about First Peter chapter 1. And the week before that, two weeks ago, we actually just talked about the life of Peter in general. He was this nobody fisherman <laughs> who Jesus called to follow him and be one of uh, his, the core, his core representatives and um, primary missionaries who helped start the movement that led to us being here today on Sunday morning, 2,000 years later. And Peter was not super wealthy. He was not super educated. He didn't have any power or prestige. He was just a lowly fisherman who God used in amazing ways. And we talked about how Peter's life had many ups and downs. There was moments where he was like, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And it was like he was up on the mountain with his faith. And then not too long after that, he betrayed and denied Jesus multiple times. So I like the story of Peter because I can relate to him in that my uh, journey with Jesus has many ups and downs. And we're going through 1 Peter, like I said, so we're going to talk about chapter 2. And as Rich mentioned last week, since we're doing a chapter a week, we're going to have to briefly touch on different things. We can't hit everything as in depth as I would like. Um, so just want, wanted to remind you of that. Uh, 1 Peter is written by the Apostle Peter, as we already spoke, and it's written to um, churches in modern-day Turkey. Now, it wasn't just one church. It was actually written to multiple churches, and it was supposed to be passed around. And during this time, the Christians were being severely persecuted for multiple reasons. First, they're just considered weird and crazy for following this crucified Messiah that they crucified Jewish peasant who they believed came back to life. Like everyone was just like, what is wrong with you? And second, they denied that Caesar was Lord and they denied all the Roman gods. And that wasn't just like something people believed in. It was like the civic religion. It was what held the empire together. It would be sort of similar um, to me like burning the American flag every day and you all finding out about it. People would be like, there's this guy over in Seattle who's just literally burning the American flag every day. It would be very controversial. And in fact, it affected their entire lives. If they would, like if you were a business person, if you were selling potatoes in the market, people wouldn't go to buy potatoes from you because they'd hear that, hey, here's the guy burning the American flag, or here's the guy who denies Caesar's Lord, won't follow the Roman gods, and is instead following this Jewish Messiah. They were not popular because of this, this, their beliefs. And so Peter hears about all this, and in the midst of it, Nero is also persecuting Christians because he blamed them for a fire in Rome. In fact, he would have these parties in which he would dip Christians in tar and then burn them alive at the parties. So there's just a lot going on in the lives of the Christians. And they're just gathering together. They're like, what do I do? How, how do I work for my boss whenever he, he thinks I'm this horrible person because I'm denying that Caesar is Lord? Or what do I do? I'm a slave for this guy who treats me so unfairly. How do we act as Christians in this context? 
uh, when I was in East Africa, I lived in an Islamic country there, and there's this guy I, I became friends with who was a Christian um, in an almost entirely Islamic country, but he was from the country next door, but he lived in this country. And uh, I remember asking him once, what's your favorite book of the Bible? And he had two, Psalms, which makes sense, right? It's the prayers of people going through hard times and crying out to God, and First Peter. Because he was a persecuted person in a, in a country that did not agree, in fact, vehemently disagreed with his beliefs. On top of that, we have to understand the demographic makeup of the early church. Justo Gonzalez, who's an, uh, he's a church historian, he says that sociological studies indicate that the vast majority of Christians during the third, first three centuries belonged to the lower echelons of society. So the vast majority of Christians were poor, were slaves, and were children, and were women, because women were not viewed as equal to men in that time period. In fact, that was reason why some people dismissed Christianity, looked down at it, and said it wasn't true. Uh, I've used this quote before, but I think it's really, really helpful. This is Celsus. He, is a, uh, he wrote this book called Against Christianity in like the second or third century AD, uh, and this is what he says about it. In some private homes, we find people who work with wool and rags and cobblers, that is, the least cultured and most ignorant kind. Before the head of the household, they dare not utter a word. But as soon as they can take the children aside or some women who are as ignorant as they are, they speak wonders. If you really wish to know the truth, leave your teachers and your father and go with the women and the children to the women's quarters or to the cobbler's shop or to the tannery, and there you will learn the perfect life. It is thus that these Christians find those who will believe them. So he was like, there's no way this is true, not because he was analyzing the truth claims of Christianity, but because he was like, it's all just these slaves and women and children and people that I don't respect who are following Jesus. And it makes sense, because the story of Jesus is the story of God become human, not becoming an emperor, not becoming the super wealthy person, but becoming a poor Jewish peasant in a random part of the Roman Empire who was crucified for what he was teaching and then was resurrected by God. Of course, that would appeal to people who are being mistreated by those around them. So, before we start going into 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, let's pray. God, thank you that you're with us and that you're for us. I pray that you would speak to us this morning. I pray that we would know your extravagant love and that we would love others around us extravagantly as well. In your name we pray. Amen. So, we're not going to read the first eight verses um, because it just for the sake of time. The first eight verses are pretty much that God is making a community of Jesus followers built around the story of Jesus and to be his temple, his representatives here on earth. And then we get to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. And this is on the screen. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So this is a very clear reference to Exodus. And the Exodus was formative in the minds of the early Christians, or in the New Testament writers. Um, the Exodus was this time in which God went to his people who were enslaved in Egypt and freed them through mighty works and miracles from the oppressive tyrants in Egypt, freed them and brought them, into, into freedom, brought them out of slavery into freedom. And then this is what he says after they're freed. Now, if you obey me, this is Exodus chapter 19. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, that then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. 
although the, the whole earth is mine, ye will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Going back to what Peter says, he says four things, and you can clearly see he's alluding to that Exodus passage. He says, you are a chosen people. Meaning, it's not, it's not like God's like, oh, all right, I guess Ben can be a part of my people. No, he chooses you. He desires you. He wants you to be in the community of God. You are a royal priesthood. Priests represent God to people on earth and represent people to God. You are called to be a representative of God here on earth. And not only just a priest, but you are a royal priest, meaning you are adopted into the family of God. You are a son and a daughter of the king and creator of this entire universe. You are a royal priest. And he is forming a holy nation, meaning a group of people who are set apart from the rest of the world based on their distinctive lifestyle. Not that we retreat out into the desert, but that we live among others in such a way that we stand out with our love and our kindness and our generosity. And finally, you are a special treasured possession. God loves you, God cherishes you, cherishes you, and you are beloved in his eyes. Now imagine your first century slave in the Roman Empire hearing that. That's incredibly good news. That's amazing. But then you go to work for your master or your your you're a woman who's married to um, a, a non-Christian man and, and he's treating you horribly. And you're like, well, okay, that's great that you say that, Peter, but what does that mean for my daily life? How do I live that out here in this context? And that's what I think the rest of Peter is about. And he starts off by, uh, by telling them, we'll go to 1 Peter, sorry, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. So now the, it sort of changes the, what Peter's talking about. Before it was like theology. This is who you are. And now it's how do you live like that in the Roman Empire. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to ab- abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify, glorify God on the day he visits us. So he starts out by calling the people he's writing to, foreigners and exiles. An exile is somebody who's not living in the land they're from. And what's interesting is most of the people he's writing to probably have been living wherever they're at for generations. But Peter's saying, you are a holy nation. Remember, you are part of a different kingdom. You're not part of the Roman Empire. You are part of the kingdom of God. You're part of the royal family. And this term exile has roots in the Old Testament. It, it really begins when um, Israel was given land after they were freed from slavery, and then they start following other gods, and they're like engaging in child sacrifice. It was not going well. Then they get exiled to Babylon, and they're exiles there, and they're trying to figure out how do we remain faithful to God while we are in exile in a foreign land. And I actually have a video to show. This is by the Bible Project. It's called The Way of the Exile. Um, here it is. In the year 587 BC, the city of Jerusalem was attacked by the Babylonian Empire. And a year later, the city and the temple were plundered and burned. Thousands of Israelites were taken from their homes and relocated all over ancient Babylon. They became exiles. And so now they're a minority surrounded by a new culture with new gods. Now, some Israelites chose to resist Babylon by revolting or withdrawing. Others gave in, adopting the Babylonian way of life and accepting these new gods as their own. 
And you might think those are your only two options, but the prophet Jeremiah told them to do something totally different and surprising. To settle in, build houses, plant gardens, grow families, and most surprisingly, to seek the well-being of Babylon and pray to the Lord on its behalf. So this is like a third way. Yeah, it's not compromise or revolt. What does it look like? Well, there's a whole book of the Bible that explores that question. It's the story of Daniel. Daniel was one of the Israelites taken into the Babylonian exile. And because Daniel had a royal heritage and education, he was recruited along with some friends to work in the high court of Babylon. Work for the enemy? That would be compromise. Or they could gain the king's trust take him down from the inside. That's what you might expect, but instead they take Jeremiah's advice and choose the third way. They serve the king of Babylon, taking on Babylonian names and even clothing style. So they seek Babylon's well-being, but in doing so, aren't they just giving up their heritage? It could seem that way, but actually they aren't. As you read on, the story focuses on moments where they draw the line and they choose faithfulness to their God and resist the influence of Babylon. So for example? Well, like when they're commanded to bow down to the idol of Babylon and give allegiance to the king as if he's a god. Ah, they won't go that far. Right, this is where you see their true loyalty. It requires them to critique Babylon's idolatry of power, its arrogance, its injustice, but they do it non-violently by laying down their lives. And so God vindicates Daniel and his friends for their faithfulness. So they would serve Babylon, seek its well-being, but their loyalty was always to God. Yeah, this is what Jeremiah was envisioning. The way of the exile is a combination of loyalty and also subversion. So they're still exiles, but don't Daniel and his friends long to go home? Yes. In fact, Daniel believed that God was going to send a ruler to bring down Babylon and create a true kingdom of peace. Ah, when did he think this ruler would come? Well, at first he thought within his lifetime, but then he had a dream where he found out that after Babylon would come another oppressive empire, then another, then another. And so Babylon did fall and Israel did get to go back home, but now they're ruled by Babylon's successors. And so they maintained the mindset of an exile waiting for their true home to come to them. And they continued the same practice of loyalty and subversion to any new versions of Babylon that came along. And this leads us to the time of Jesus. The empire of his day was Rome, ruled by Caesar. Now, some Israelites wanted to resist, while others gave in and adopted Roman culture and its gods. But watch Jesus carry on the subversive loyalty of Daniel. Like when he said, it's fine to pay taxes to Caesar, give him back his coins. But then he said, don't mistake Caesar for God. God's the one who deserves your total life and allegiance. So the way of Jesus is this same mix of loyalty and subversion. Yeah, like he taught his followers to love and even bless their enemies. But he also got arrested for speaking out against the corrupt leaders of Jerusalem and Rome. He critiqued their idolatry of power and it cost him his life. But God vindicated him by raising him from the dead as the true king of the nations. The king that Daniel had hoped for. Right. And Jesus promised that one day his kingdom would prevail. And so until then, his followers are living in a type of exile. Yeah, this is why the apostle Peter calls followers of Jesus foreigners and exiles. He told them to respect the authorities of whatever place you happen to live, to honor and love all people. But then he reminds them that this isn't their true home. They're still living in Babylon. But well, they're not living in Babylon. Babylon doesn't exist anymore. 
Or does it? In the Bible, Babylon has become a symbol that describes any human institution that demands allegiance to its idolatrous redefinitions of good and evil. Okay, so we all live and work in Babylon. How do I seek the well-being of Babylon while my allegiance is to someone greater? Yes, Jesus' followers are called to live in that tension between loyalty and subversion. That's the way of the exile. All right, so that is a Bible Project video called The Way of the Exile. I recommend watching all their videos because they're super helpful in my opinion. Um, so that's what Peter's referring to, that we are called to loyalty and subversion. We are called to seek the welfare of America, but also remember our number one loyalty and allegiance is to King Jesus. And maybe you get lost like I do and get swept up in all the craziness of American politics. In the middle of that, it's really easy to forget that I'm part of a different nation. Yes, I should care about America. Yes, I should care about justice and I should seek it. But I am primarily a follower of Jesus. I am a member of a holy nation, a royal priesthood. I am chosen by God and I am his treasured possession. So I don't know about you, but maybe there are times where you've been swept up in um, whatever allegiances might vie for your attention here in America. And so Peter is talking about that. And he says, or well, we just, the passage we just read, he's saying, since you're exiles and you're probably going to get mistreated, even though they accuse you of doing wrong, act in such a way that they um, seek God and they find Jesus by the way you live, by the good deeds and your loving actions. So that's pretty general. And then he's slowly going to get more and more specific. So next is verses 13 through 17. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So here... Peter says to submit to human authorities, but there are three qualifiers that I wrote down in that text. First, it is for the sake of the Lord or for the Lord's sake. In chapter one of 1 Peter, he calls us to obey God three times. So if in submitting to authorities, it means we can't obey God, then we don't do what they say. That's, I think, easy enough to comprehend. And interestingly enough, back in 1 Peter, or back in this passage, it's interesting that he says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. And then he calls the emperor just emperor. Remember, Caesar considered himself Lord. But who is Peter saying is Lord? Jesus. And he puts him as primary, the first person. So it is because of Jesus, who is our Lord, that we submit to human authorities. As long as it doesn't mean betraying um, commandments or the commands of God. Second, we submit as free people. Remember the Exodus imagery. Remember the story that God has freed us from slavery to sin and death and um, that we are born into this new community of Jesus followers in which all are equal. And in the Roman society, there were, you were broadly separated into two different categories, slaves or free. And within the free people, 
there were another two categories, freed or free, meaning you were formerly a slave and you were freed, which happened somewhat often. Either you saved up enough money or you did something that made your master want to free you or they wanted favor with the God so they'd let you go. Um, there's various ways that happen. Um, so, but Peter isn't saying you're freed people. He's saying you're free people. Because you were born again when you started following Jesus. You were born again into new life and you are being formed into the image of Christ. And so now you're a free person. And then he adds, as God's slaves, which seems a little contradictory, right? So the word that here used for slave is doulos. And in Greek, there's not really a word for servant. It's mostly just slave. And I think that in this context, I think servant would probably be a better translation because I don't think God is like, because slave means you can't ever leave, right? You, you have no power over whether or not you obey this person. Whereas as God's servants, God is never somebody who's forcing us to do anything. Instead, God is a God who woos us and reaches out to us and invites us into a new family of believers, into a new way of life. God is not someone who rules over us with an iron fist. God is someone who became human and died on our behalf so that we might follow him fully. So I think God, servants of God might be more accurate translation in this particular context. And finally, submission is an expression of freedom, not coercion. So from our freedom, we are able to submit in this manner. And at the very end, Peter does something pretty radical. Uh, at the very end, it says, show proper respect to everyone. Now, this is the NIV, and a lot of times in English, we, if we use the same word over and over again in like a sentence or a paragraph, it's considered not, you know, not as eloquent of English. Uh, but in the, in the New Testament, they did that a lot. So the NIV changed it, but the word here is actually honor. Literally, it says tamao, which means honor. So it says honor everyone, and then the exact same thing later on, honor the emperor, tamao the emperor. So Peter's saying, yeah, honor the emperor, but you also honor everyone else. So there's this pyramid in which people, this hierarchical pyramid in Roman society that Peter just completely flattened. <laughs> Honor everyone and honor the emperor. It's pretty radical if you think about it. So in conclusion, for this passage at least, uh, as free people who are servants of God, we are to submit to human institutions so long as that does not require us to betray our loyalty to King Jesus. Next, he gets even more specific. Slaves, this is verses 18 through 20. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. So before we address this, we have to admit that passages like this are really challenging for us to hear. Like, seriously, Peter? Like, come on, just tell them to like, lead a rebellion. Tell them that they should be freed. What, what's going on here? Well, I think that whenever we put this in context, it makes way more sense, in my opinion. But, that being said, we have to acknowledge that no matter how much we put it in context, our African-American brothers and sisters feel pain when they hear this, feel frustration, anger, because... Uh, in America, white Christians used passages like this to weaponize and justify slavery in America. So it has a bad history of being misinterpreted. That being said, 
Whenever we read the word slave, I think we have to be careful not to project uh, what happened in America onto first century context. It was still evil and brutal, but it was different. First off, uh, it was not race-based. You were born into slavery, uh, you were either, you lost, maybe your people were conquered in a battle and you were put into slavery, or often people sold themselves into slavery to pay off debts, because a lot of people were super, super indebted. And some estimates say that over one-third of the Roman Empire was in slavery. Over one-third. So it was crucial to the way the entire empire functioned. I read one scholar, they said it was like, getting rid of slavery would be like telling, it would be like in modern-day America, getting rid of gas, motorized vehicles, and electricity. Now, obviously, those things are not moral issues, <laughs> for the most part, at least, but uh, slavery is obviously evil and immoral. But imagine if we had no electricity, no gas, no running water. Your days would be spent chopping wood, walking to the market to find vegetables, boiling water. Everything would be completely different. That's how slavery was so integral and crucial to the functioning of this empire. It was a heartbeat of the empire, as evil and horrible as it was. It was just everywhere. And many slaves could own property. Some even had their own slaves, and they could, at times, save up money or do things that um, allowed them to be freed. We don't know how common that was. Some people, I think, will overplay it, make it sound as though it happens all the time, but I don't really think that we really know how often slaves are actually freed in the Roman Empire. Um, some slaves were physicians, some were sea captains, some were businessmen. In fact, uh, one of the governors of Judea, not too long after Jesus, was actually a freed slave. So there were times in which slaves were freed and rose to positions of prominence. Now, that's not to whitewash slavery in the first century. It was still brutal and sinful. In fact, many slaves were expected to be sexually available to their master and any other male in the household at all times. That's horrible. And you can imagine that slaves would be upset with this predicament. And so sometimes they would run away. And the people who ran away got even got tortured and would get crucified and they would get killed or they would get limbs chopped off. The idea of running away was also almost impossible because the Roman Empire was huge and you were branded. It was just super hard to run away, if not impossible. But then every once in a while, a rebellion would occur. Like, for example, Spartacus, which you might have heard of that rebellion. Um, a slave in Rome led this rebellion and they were somewhat successful at first. They ended up losing. And then uh, the emperor had 6,000 of them crucified along the main road going out of Rome. Imagine walking down the main road of Rome and you're a slave in the Roman Empire. There are 6,000 bodies hanging from trees. I'm guessing you would never want to rebel if you saw that. It served as a ghastly warning to never go against the empire. And so you might be asking, like I mentioned at the beginning, if slavery was so horrible, why didn't Peter just rail against the institution of slavery and tell them all to seek their release? I think a couple of things. One, they had no power. There was no social media. There was no YouTube videos that can go viral. There was no GoFundMe pages. There was no local elected official call. There was no voting in general. And they were this random religious group that everyone hated that was started in a remote area of the empire that was founded on the story of a crucified peasant who came back to life. They had zero social power. 
And also we have to remember that Peter wasn't writing this from a, a villa in southern Italy, sipping wine and eating grapes all day. Peter was also a poor fisherman who also had next to no power in society at large. In fact, he was eventually severely persecuted, which resulted, according to church tradition, in his death in Rome. And he was killed for following Jesus. Shively T.J. Smith, who is a New Testament scholar, says this about 1 Peter. 1 Peter is writing from the underclass for the underclass, not the overlord. I think that's really important to remember. First Peter is writing from the underclass for the underclass, not the overlord. So for me, while it seems clear that the New Testament writers viewed slaves as having equal dignity, status, worthiness, and respect, I mean, I think of Paul who says that in Christ Jesus, there's neither slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, but we're all one in Christ Jesus. I mean, that's a revolutionary statement. Or if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, all humans are created in the image of God. So I think the New Testament writers viewed slavery as not in line with God's will, but they lacked the imagination and the ability to do anything in society at large. I just don't think they could fathom the idea of the institution of slavery disappearing. They just couldn't imagine it. And while that could bother us, and I think it does to a certain extent, like, why couldn't Paul or Peter just imagine the idea of slavery being abolished? I, I just, the reality is they just couldn't imagine that. So, going into this passage, about in, in 18 through 20, it says they're called slaves right at the beginning, and that word is actually not a normal word for slave. It's ukatai. Or, sorry, not ukatai, oikatai. Uh, and that refers to household slaves. But interestingly, beforehand, right before that, we're called slaves of God, doulases of God. So a lot of people think that Peter is drawing a distinction there and that God is our primary loyalty and that also uh, he's using, he's like, so living in exile, what's the worst situation you could be in in the Roman Empire? And then I'm going to use that as an example of how to live in a godly way that brings people to Jesus. And he chooses the slaves in their congregation. So this doesn't just apply to the slaves, but everyone in the congregation. It's showing them how to follow God in challenging circumstances. Uh, and remember, this is all under the idea of living such good lives that non-Christians see their good deeds and glorify God. So with that, Peter is assuming that the master is not Christian. Look at, look at um, in the middle there, it says, For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. So they're being punished for following God, for following Jesus is what Peter is saying. So the assumption is throughout this is that you are having to submit to somebody who is not a Christian and they do not like that you're Christian and they're treating you unjustly, they're persecuting you and you are being um, beaten and you're suffering for it. And then Peter goes on, verses 21 through 25. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insult at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he trusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin, sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So now Peter is providing meaning and hope in the midst of their trials and suffering. He reiterates the shame, the torture, and the beatings that their one true Lord, Jesus, 
what he received. Peter's saying that by comparing our sufferings to Jesus, we can be confident and experience three different things. So in suffering, we can be confident of three things. In suffering, we can identify with Jesus and know that we are following his example. So in suffering, we can know that we are one with Jesus, that the God of the universe became human and experienced suffering as well. We can also know that there is one who judges justly. Sometimes we don't really like the idea of judgment, but I guarantee you, if you were a slave in the first century being beaten unjustly for following Jesus, you'd be praying for a just God. Third, God does not desire us to suffer. God never wants us to suffer, but he can redeem suffering, just like God redeemed the suffering of Jesus on the cross. The most horrific event turned out to be for the redemption of the entire world. And just a note, I don't think that he's saying, therefore go seek out suffering so that uh, you can be like Jesus. I think he's just assuming that suffering will come to you at some point in your life. You don't need to seek it out. It will come to you as you follow Jesus. And in those moments, you can rest assured that you can identify with Jesus, that there's one who judges justly, and that God will redeem the situation in the long run. So in conclusion... I think that it's pretty clear that this text does not justify slavery. It simply assumes that it exists. It just assumes it exists. And that the slave and the church have no power to do anything about it. Now, in context where we have power to do something about it, we should 100% be acting to free people who are being treated poorly and unjustly. So Peter is telling those who are being so oppressed and mistreated that they can compare their situation to the sufferings of Jesus, which could be a powerful source of strength and redemption. In addition, their sufferings might lead someone to Jesus. Esau Macaulay, who's a uh, New Testament scholar, says this about submission. When Paul speaks of slaves honoring their masters, he does not mean unquestioned obedience. Drawing on the prophetic tradition, he has in mind behaving in such a way that their masters are drawn to God. This included, according to the Old Testament testimony, periodic refusal to obey. This is not slavery as evangelism. Instead, it is saying that even in slavery, one has some ability to live in a way that testifies to their beliefs. And Esau Macaulay points out that uh, in the Old Testament tradition, you have stories like Joseph, who was enslaved in Egypt. And when he was in slavery, uh, the wife of his master tried pressuring him to have sex with her and he refused, and then he was punished for it and suffered in prison for a few years. Or Daniel, like we watched in the video, who stood up against the king and refused to bow down to idols, refused to stop praying to God, and he suffered for that. So I think Peter is assuming that you submit, but only insofar as it doesn't mean betraying your allegiance to Jesus. In the end, I think Peter was trying to pastor Christians in an incredibly difficult situation. This is what Catherine Gonzalez says. Christians existed in two worlds, and thus in terms of the issue of slavery, they needed to live in Roman society in the old way, but within the community of believers, there was an overcoming of the division between slave and master and other hierarchical structures of the old creation. The spiritual solution to the sad state of slavery within the Greco-Roman Empire was not violent overthrow, but the construction of an alternative, alternative society, the Church of Jesus Christ, which would ultimately triumph. I think she gets to the heart of it. As a church, we are, we are to construct an alternative society, a society in which all are treated with dignity and respect, 
society in which we acknowledge that each and every one of us are priests, are sons and daughters of God, are treasured possessions of God, that we are chosen, that God desires us to be part of this new community. A society in which the crucified Messiah is at the center. A society in which we fully know the love of God, we experience it and we feel it, and we in turn show that love of God to others around us, even in the midst of persecution. A society in which we point out injustice, we point out whenever um, the people around us are not, uh, or society is not um, treating people justly, in which the society is not following um, the commands of God to treat one another with dignity and respect, and that all human beings are made in the image of God. So with that, there are some, I have a few connection card questions. Do you think that you live as an exile? Are you able to hold the tension between complete loyalty to Jesus and caring about the welfare of America? Do you feel as though you are currently being treated unjustly? How do you respond to that treatment? What do you sense the Holy Spirit is inviting you into from this passage? Just a reminder that the prayer app is live, um, and let's close in prayer, and we'll have one more song afterwards. Father, Son, Spirit, thank you that you are with us and you're for us. Jesus, thank you that we're all created in the image of God. Thank you that you cherish each and every one of us equally, that we are treasured possessions. I pray for anyone here who finds himself in a difficult situation where they're being treated poorly at work or in their family or wherever else it might be. Pray that they would be able to identify with you, Jesus, in their sufferings. That they would know that you are with them and that you are for them. That they'd be able to trust that you can bring good even out of the worst situations. And God, I pray that we would know completely the love you have for us throughout this week. That we in turn would show that love to those around us, even the people that really bother us and annoy us. In your name we pray. Amen.